0: Welcome to Racket Fuel, where we launch into great conversations and share powerful tools to help you become a stronger rackets leader. Your hosts are Kim Bastable, a former All-American tennis player and now the Director of Tennis Management at the University of Florida, and Simon Gale, the USTA National Campus Director of Racket Sports. In this episode, we tell the story of how two brothers from Perth, Australia ended up leading two of the most elite rackets operations in the U.S. Simon's brother, Chris Gale, is with us today as we fuel up on their secrets to leadership, team building, and culture. Now, here's Kim and Simon.
1: Welcome back. Stay tuned today. This is a fascinating discussion. These guys admittedly aren't the best players in the world, although they did play for toasters and blankets in their early years, but they are great leaders. So I'm going to let Simon and Chris tell you how they learned the tricks of the trade. Here we go. Take it away, Simon.
2: All right, Chris. Welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on and and this is an amazing uh amazing moment for us to do something like this together. I don't think we've done anything like this. So, uh excited to have you here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about River Oaks Country Club, you know, what it is, where it is in kind of the tennis landscape and uh and then we'll start there. Thank you. Sounds
3: great. And and Kim and Simon, thanks for having me on such a such an exciting opportunity and uh and really, really looking forward to this. So, um, yeah, I've, I'm the director of Rackets at River Rose Country Club, which is a, uh, the number 11 platinum country club, uh, in, and it's, it's situated about five miles from downtown Houston, Texas. A beautiful club with, uh, with 16 courts, eight red clay, uh, eight hard courts. We have 5,000 members, an extremely robust tennis program and pickleball program here. We have 14 full-time staff members, and all 14 of them are certified in both uh, Pickleball and in, in Tannis. Um, and actually, just last week, we, we hosted the, uh, the U.S. Men's Clay Court Championship uh, ATP event, um, which, uh, which we've been hosting now for quite some time. And, um, and, and it's, a, it's a pleasure to be able to host such a, a great event for our members in the community in Houston here.
1: Yeah, that that's an amazing facility, amazing uh, event that you guys get to have. Uh, gets a glimpse into your club, so that that's fun that we get to see that. So let's start out though with a little bit of uh, the brother story, so we can get a reflection here. What was your view of Simon growing up? He's your older brother, and 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 tell us how you guys spent the first years of your of your tennis career in Perth. Oh,
3: wow, that's a that's a great question. I mean the growing up in in western australia it's it's just a, a beautiful place and a beautiful uh climate and and recreation is just part of the australian culture and lifestyle and so we were we were simon and i were actually pretty big into another another sport called cricket um and we would play that endlessly uh and so the second most played sport in the world after soccer but i think that that our introduction to tennis was during a, a school vacation week, we kept telling our mom how bored we were. So she put us in a tennis camp uh, with a guy named Bruce Robinson, who was a bit of an, a legend in, in Australia. And he really took to us and took him under, uh, you know, he took us under his wings. And that's where the the, the 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 love of tennis really started with me. And I think it did with Simon. He, he, he might correct me if I'm wrong. But yeah, we were young and and that's that's how that's how we got started and then it became kind of a, an addiction, you know, playing at our local club and uh playing competitive uh team tennis as juniors and then as adults and um so that was the foundation for for our and speci- specifically my tennis in in Perth, Western Australia.
2: Yeah, and it's 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 pretty rare we always talk about this how we never stop and reflect on kind of where you came from and you're always looking ahead what's next. So hearing Chris talk about growing up in Perth, I, I think now that we've both been in in the states for the best part of twenty five, thirty years, you took for granted what Perth was and what Australia was as a culture and and you miss a lot of those things and sports and being outdoors is just part of the culture, especially because of the climate. It's just a perfect place to 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 be outside all the time. So anything that we could throw, hit, catch, compete in, we did it. And, and you grew up doing everything. And so I, I don't think we specialized in tennis until we were a little older. Or even if we did heavy tennis, we were always doing something else. It was a, there was a winter sport in addition to tennis, which was year-round, but we played winter sports as well. So I, I think if you look at what, what the pathway to tennis was, I do remember that camp. But I think even prior to that, there was an after-school program that, that was a little four or six week after school program intro to tennis and, and, and that was played at the neighboring club to where my school was and I was about 10 when I started. So I started late compared to you know now as soon as a kid can walk, they seem to have a racket in their hand So I think we started later and, and got hooked on it but played everything. And just a quick story to that is it was funny that the timing of this is this week because over the Easter break. We would always go to this country tennis tournament and go with our club and all the members and and play in as many events as possible on these pristine grass courts and It was you know if you won the tournament, you won a toaster or a blanket or something amazing like that. it wasn't trophies, prizes, that sort of thing and we were texting with dad in who's in Australia over the weekend, and we were doing a three way text just reflecting back on those days and how much they meant to us and what they meant to dad as a father, and now that we're fathers, just they're cool memories that have lasted a lifetime because of this sport. And I think that's just what's one of the great things about the industry we're in.
1: Yeah, yeah. Chris, I mean, do you remember that tournament? Do you remember – and what was your father? Was he in- inspiring for you guys?
3: I absolutely remember that tournament. It was, it was kind of like the highlight of the year because um, there was good players that went to it. You know, it was it – was, and, and it, the, the, a large population of players from Perth, over that Easter weekend would would migrate out to various smaller rural country towns and kind of take over the the tennis the tennis courts there and have big tournaments and um so it was a real it wasn't just a tournament there was also a sense of community there because everyone kind of camped or you know were in hotels or and and, and everyone hung out outside of the tennis so it was a really a unique experience that you can't really give justice just by describing but um, but dad, dad was an inspiration. I mean, dad was a, an amazing athlete. Um, and one of the most intelligent guys that, uh, that I've ever met, um, a world renowned engineer, but also was, was scouted by professional football teams in Australia to play football. But he, 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 he absolutely knew at a young age that a great education was more important to him than playing professional sports. Um, so that really resonated with Simon and I, because, uh, we, for, we <laughs> chose to forego our, our, our tertiary education and pursue sports. So it was uh, – but Dad, that was definitely Dad's an inspiration. Never, athletic. athletic. Dan's never recovered from that. Yeah, he <laughs> I think he's just recovered now. It's, uh,
1: <laughs> yeah. So um, so who were some – Just I, I grew up and I love John Newcomb and Ken Roswell. Who were some of the people you looked up to on Australia already? Did you look up to Americans? Who did you look up to at your young ages? I think that Simons and mine are identical. There was a there was an Aussie
3: tennis player called Pat Cash who who just single-handedly won two Davis Cups in the eighties, won Wimbledon in nineteen eighty-seven. Um, you know, and he was just a an Aussie tennis legend because he he and that was that was during Simon's and my real late formative years, you know, inspiration wise and 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 really looking up to an, an athlete. Um but he was he was kind of an Australian legend, you know I think he, he peaked out at like top four in the world you know was was really the the guy that carried Australian tennis on his shoulders for quite some time.
2: yeah i would I would second that and I think he also inspired us to all grow mullets and uh, listen to rock music. He was a bit of a rebel. He was the one international superstar. We had a lot of great Aussie players, but he was that celebrity international superstar right around that. That same period, you had, you know, like Greg Norman in golf was the equivalent. And, and for a country that's so isolated to have somebody out on a world stage, you know, that's a, a big deal. Um, you know, we're not America where it's just flush with sports and sporting celebrities. So you grab onto these celebrities and sporting icons, you know, whether it's cricket, golf, tennis, if they're at that level, they're rock stars in your country. So they were definite inspirations. The Woodies were were winning doubles titles right around that period right after then as well and you know we grew up playing on grass courts so coming to america and going on slow red clay in vermont and learning to hit three balls in a row I, i'd never done that you know it was serve volley and if the ball bounced you should lose the point was mm-hmm. was kind of the was kind of the strategy or tactic so yeah That's good same as Chris. It's funny that we got the same role That's models. Good. Mm. So,
1: okay. So, Chris, when did you know that or direct, you know, a career in racket sports was, was the step you wanted to take? Um, how'd you get there? And did you map out this career that took you to River Oaks or how'd you get here? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting because I do think
3: about it often. I'll, I'll never forget, Kim. We had to do in, – in fourth grade, I was nine years old. We had to do like a, a speech or a, in front of the whole class – Something that you were passionate about or you loved, and mine was tennis. And I brought my racket in, and I was describing like why this racket is so great compared to other rackets, and talking about tennis and how much I love it. And I went on and on and on. And I remember the teacher looking at me, um, and uh, and she goes, "Wow, I I think that your career is going to be tennis." And I was nine years old. And um, it's it's a was that the defining moment retrospectively you know, yeah, that stands out. I'll, I'll never forget that statement from her. But no, I'm really fortunate, Kim. I, I've only ever had one job in my life, and that's teaching tennis. Uh, I never have worked uh, in, in any doing anything else. And, and it started at 15 um, yeah, when my, my coach said to me, hey, um, do you have aspirations of being a pro tennis player? And I said, no. And he said, well, good, because I didn't want to have to have that hard conversation that you weren't going to cut it. He goes, but I tell you what, I'll teach you how to teach. And so he, he did. And he was brilliant. Uh, he was an absolute master with teaching, with people, with communication, just his whole energy and, and the way that he was. So, you know, I would think I was very fortunate. I got started off at a very young age and, and he, was, he was great at giving constructive criticism without shattering your ego. You know, I think that my leadership style started with him and, and to, to kind of further the, the, the pathway. I knew at a young age here in the U.S. that the, the private club sector was my my pathway and, and what I was going to be most successful at. And um, you know, I think that that I got very fortunate. At 21 years of age, I became director of tennis at a private country club in in the desert in California, in Palm Desert. And um, once you have a director of tennis on your resume, it just gets your foot in the door to to so many interviews that that if you have an assistant director or a head professional you, you you it just really blazes a different pathway
1: yeah well that's interesting you mentioned a mentor because I've done you know studies recently that show sixty six percent of the pros who responded to the survey I did said that it was a person who inspired them to want to be have a career in our industry uh, and you know it's some people might just say the flat out love of the game which you clearly had but You you had somebody who I would call created a sliding door moment for you. You know, opened it up and thought, "Oh wow, this could be bigger than I even maybe thought." Or I never, maybe you hadn't at that point thought about that, but your fourth grade teacher opened that door. So, Simon, what's your mentor story? Can you same same guy or different or what?
2: No, it was the exact same guy. In in the first podcast, we we talked about how I got started, and it was that little newspaper ad that I found and applied for this job. But it was at this same mentor bill monday was his name and and he had a club in perth and then he was a a real country guy so he on his farm had all these courts a couple of clay courts and some grass courts that he was starting to run some camps out of so i didn't start in coaching i started as the cook's assistant cleaning the bathrooms and making the fires and mowing the courts each day and then after hanging around the courts a few days he said would you like to try teaching it seems like you have an interest." So gave me eight kids and said, go teach them Diwali. And at the end of that hour, one of the kids said, Simon, do you know how to say anything else except good shot? Because all you said was good shot, good shot, good shot for an hour. But I knew right then that I loved it. And I think at that age, 17, 18, it was cool versus it was a career and and you just enjoyed it. It paid better than working at McDonald's or something like that. And it was fun. So it was a natural pathway to make some money. But I ended up in the UK for a couple of years and traveled around Europe a little bit. And I was a cocktail barman for a year at a nightclub and then another year at a four and a half, five-star hotel, and then ended up in the States. And as I traveled around the States, I, I started to see the amount of clubs, the amount of people, the amount of opportunities, and started to think there's only a handful of clubs in Perth and they've got really good, there was a lot of good coaches and they had all those great positions, is there a pathway for me in Perth or, or is there more opportunity in the States? And it just felt like you would look at the coaches in the States and say, I think over time I could get to a position like that and that's where I need to be. And it's a real business here. Whereas I think in, in Australia and really a lot of places around the world, it's a sport and a hobby for a lot of people, but it's hard to make a, a great living and it's a lot more of a grind than, than it is here in terms of salaries and benefits. And that's just really difficult in Australia. So I think we both saw that early and, and gravitated towards, you know, we need to end up in the States.
1: Well, Chris, so you mentioned, and I, I find it interesting, you know, the only job you've ever had is teaching tennis, except you run a, a program at a club with 5,000 members. And I bet you're not on the court very much. So realistically, you are a businessman. And I think that's what we'd like the, career, you know, the world to know, that this really isn't anymore about teaching tennis for the people who are in both of your shoes. And when does that transition happen? And how did you get ready for it? It's a great question. Um, I, I think that, that you, you, can, you can
3: almost... So I've been in the US for 27 years now. You can, you can look back through those 27 years and, and the involvement of what the the requirements, thought processes and demands are on a director of tennis or rackets. Um, you know, early in my career, it was being, being present, ready to play with members, doing clinics and, and, uh, running events that exceeded expectations. Then it kind of evolved more to like, well, let's get a dynamic staff, uh, manage the staff and, and, uh but you still need to have a large presence on the court. And then it continues to evolve into a, well, now you're a, a director of rackets. It's multiple sports, so you need multiple talented uh, staff that can, that can diversify themselves between tennis and whatever other rackets it is that's being offered. And so it's, it's, it's gone from being like a head tennis professional, basically, director of tennis, director of rackets. And, and I really feel, Kim, you know, with absolutely zero ego, that, that my position here at River Rose Country Club is like the CEO of tennis. Uh, or CEO of rackets um, you know it's it 's an extremely large uh, budget, capital projects uh, long long range short range planning, uh, staffing development, uh, staffing diversification uh, on top of that you 've got all your program development. How are you staying ahead of the curve so that the members of River Oaks Country Club are receiving the most dynamic, ultimate forward thinking rackets program? In the country, because they deserve it, um, and 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 everyone that steps foot on the USTA national campus deserves that as well. So so it's it's more than just can you break down a forehand biomechanically or run a great you know women women's team practice. No, it's it's having the ability to have a staff that can do that while well, you still need to be out there. I think you know I, I love the the 10 to 15 hours I teach. Sometimes when I'm teaching 15, I'm like this is too much. This is way too much. You know I. And um, so 10 hours is kind of like my sweet spot. And some people don't want to get on a tennis court, but I like it. I like the connection. I like the connection with uh, the staff, the team. Um, and I really like that on-court connection with the members because majority of the time, if a member is coming into my office or, or I'm asking them to come in, it's a, it's a conversation which, is, which has got a, a real end point. But on a tennis court or a pickleball court, these people are coming during their recreation time to be with you. What what better compliment can you have? Because they could do anything, you know? So so that connection to me is really key. But it, where I'm at right now, Kim, it, it, if I'm doing more than 10 hours a week, I, I I feel it and know it. I'm spreading myself pretty thin.
1: Yeah, Simon, I'm sure you have a response as well. And just in general, where did you learn it? How do you get there? Because you guys do. You have very different positions than the so-called rank and file or entry level pro.
2: Yeah, it's interesting listening to Chris describe it because you, you think about. You start out as a forty forty hour a week pro and do the do the teaching and it's all about me and it's it's a connection with the the client and I'm trying to get them to come back and you know get my paycheck every week and and then as you move up the pathway or, or the, the 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 career ladder and you end up a director at some point maybe it's starting at a small club like we both did and you are on court still a lot and you can't afford to have lots of layers of leadership and. And assistant directors and so on. And then you gradually, if you keep graduating, you move into bigger and bigger operations, which take you off the court more versus just because you're a director, you should be off the court 30 hours and 10 hours on the court. I think it depends on the size of your f- operation. And as it gets bigger, then you have more layers, then you've got to learn to delegate. And so you, you need to be off the court more. And For example, I don't teach any hours anymore. It was part of the job description which was really weird to me and I, I still miss it because that's what we got into the industry for and, and the connections as Chris said and just being around people but having a, a, a leadership role that changes over time and I think it becomes more off-court and you're in hiring and, and and philosophy and vision and you you need your team to deliver the product. So. That's just a natural evolution, I think, as you go through different directors' roles.
1: Yeah, but okay, so let's go to the idea of the University of Florida's Director of Racket Sports you know, education course, where we now educate and certify USPTA and PTR certified directors of racket sports, who come through that course, theoretically, because you guys have lived through this apprenticeship model, but we now have this education model. So you didn't have a course like this to sort of feel like you got your head around it would that have like would that have been great what were the pitfalls of of not having that maybe you could share i mean i'm not shameless plug for the course but just kind of try to understand how the the industry is changing i'd love to i'd love to lead up on that one simon i think kim you know part of your
3: previous question was like well how did how did you how did you figure it all out you know how did you you know and and let me let me start with that number one is is um i think that that anyone that talks to me on a frequent basis gets sick of the sick and tired of me using the word mentor because i had the ultimate uh 24 years old i got an assistant director of rackets position at a place called Dedham Country and Polo Club in in uh, in Boston uh director there's name was Reese Thomas to say that he was brilliant is an understatement and and he he did something which i call a re- an industry rescue uh, i was ready to get out of it because i had an interaction with a member I must have been tired. I don't know what it was, but she did not like the way I spoke with her. And she didn't complain to me. She complained to the director of rackets and she complained to the general manager with quite hostility. And, and I was like, you know what? I don't need this Reese. I'm out. And he goes, and, and I will never forget. He's like, please do not leave this industry. And he goes, and he, and he talked me through the whole process of how to smooth this out. And if he hadn't have done that, I wouldn't still be in this industry. And I learned so much from him over the next four and a half years. So he was brilliant. The one thing that he did not do, which I wish he had have done, was let me sit in on board meetings, committee meetings, um, association meetings. Where those were those are the things that that um, learning on the fly were the most difficult, Kim. And and just sitting there as a 25, six, seven-year-old with him seeing how he handled it, seeing what these processes are, seeing what these conversations are, would have been great, you know, for, for someone like me. But, you know, I you'd learn it as you go through and you learn it on the fly. And do you make mistakes? Darn straight you do. And and the greatest directors and leaders recognize their mistakes, learn from it and, and become greater leaders because of them. As long as they haven't buried themselves with the mistake that they've made, you know. So It's, it's, um, something like, you know, the program that you're heading up, uh, what a, what a gift that would have been as a, like I said, I got my first director's position at 21 to be able to, to, to go through a course like that and say, Hey, now I've got people I can lean on. Now I've got people I can reach back out to and say, Hey, you know, professor, we went over this in, in the second module. What can you just go over this again? And give me some more clarity. That was never there. Um, you know, so so the mentors was my University of Florida, and those. There's another one a, a mentor I had. His name is David Moore, absolutely brilliant. Um, and he's over at Houston Country Club now. To this day, I, I'll call Reese or I'll call David, and 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 just get just get confirmation or quantification of what I'm doing is the right thing. Um, so m- now it's time for me to pay it back, and 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 let that be something that
2: that I do for, for other future leaders and leaders in the industry. Yeah, and Kim, I, I would back that up with I think we all had mentors who helped us learn how to teach, and, and maybe they didn't actually put, pull you aside and teach you how to teach, but you worked alongside them and you copied and you emulate and you listened and then you applied it yourself. And if, you, if you're into growing as a coach, you, you pick up on the people around you, which is a great uh, value of working on a team. You learn from the pros around you just naturally but i look back to when i started getting into being director at a, at a larger program say at yonker's tennis it was a big program that we built it into but the owner of that facility uh, joe curto he he taught me how to take care of people how to be more empathetic and care about your staff and look at work life balance and and Taking care of people financially before they come and ask you for a raise, can you be a step ahead of them and sh- show that you're acknowledging their, their growth and, and, and you, their value to your business? But I, I remember so many lessons now that I probably didn't take in at the time, but they, they've helped me as I've moved through new leadership roles. Something as simple as I remember statements like, it's great that you've built the club up to 600 kids a week. But now your biggest challenge is maintaining it. That sometimes is more difficult than growing something. Is can you actually maintain it? And so there the statements I use as a leader that I didn't write them down. I just remember them, and you start using them. Like Chris is talking about the statements he probably uses with his with his team. You know, I, I say things like it's it's more than just tennis, and it's and that that means you know it's a connection to your people and. So we have these things that we try and pass on, but a lot of it happens naturally. So we didn't have any course. And and one of the things that I would take out of the course, because I'm just about to finish it, is at 21, 22 years of age, like Chris said, the value of sitting in on a board meeting or committee meetings or how to present things is something that we don't get taught. But understanding financial statements like the amount of directors who are probably looking at P and Ls and balance sheets for the first time and saying, "I don't know how to decipher this and interpret it and then present it to my committee." Your course helps them get equipped for things like that. So I think it adds real value and it's a great asset for a young, up and coming, or even a director who's well established, just to brush up on some skills. Well, yeah,
1: it's one of the things I believed in the original alley of is that you know we aren't necessarily going to teach you everything, but we can hopefully teach you a lot of people that you can connect you to a lot of people even within the course and then through the experts in the course because I think mentors and knowing who to pick up the phone and call and is important and you guys have given some great examples so just kind of uh, to we'll wrap this up in a minute but to get through that mentoring how would you recommend someone find a mentor that's a great question um, I think I think that I think that there's
3: there's benchmarking out there and I think that right now uh, with with the amount of opportunity to to really research places and people and 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 uh, you know what what industry you're in and I'll speak on the on the private club sector you know if you look at it um, there's mediums and forums where you can see what are the leading programs what are the leading clubs what are the what are the leading directors you know I think that that the private club industry is starting to see more leaders being keynote speakers at PTA and PTR conventions, um, you know, CMA uh, is is a great thing for, for, um, for the private club industry. But, but also, you know, with, with the networking, that's a, that's, that's really available now. If you, if you make the effort to network and create a brand for yourself uh, quite often the, the, the reciprocation of a mentor will appear. And, and if you're, if that's, if you're a leader, if you're someone who is, who is, an aspiring leader or is, is in the industry as an assistant professional or an assistant director when you're interviewing for a position in the private club sector, you should be, you should be assessing whether that director that is potentially going to be hiring, you will have that, that mentor quality. And, and I think that a great mentor who is a director will make, spell that out. Very, very clear. I know I certainly do. When anyone comes on board at River Oaks country club, I make it very clear to them, if they have aspirations to grow in this industry, that's my job. That's my job to mentor them, put my wings around them, and ensure that they have every opportunity to grow to, to the to the maximum of their p- potential and reach their goals.
1: Yeah, I think that's the key. I think you've got great great insights for people who are coming up to make sure that they do get connected. Then, And I would say from what I've seen from your discussions, there was the mentor that maybe inspired you. But that's not the forever. You're not going to go necessarily back to that. Then there's another one at another stage of your career, and yet another one at another stage of your career. And in my understanding of mentors, it's good to have kind of a set, maybe, uh, you know, would you mentor me for six months or a year, maybe an agreement, and then maybe it will expand and become a lifelong friendship for all you know. But if there's an initial agreement at the beginning, it feels a little less intimidating. Uh, what, what's I know you have a story, Simon, about how you've kind of developed a mentorship agreement with someone.
2: Yeah, and I, th- I think when you when you talk about mentors too, there's there's lifelong mentors, there's mentors at certain points in your career. But I've always put a real value on how I leave a place and the relationships that I I try and keep intact whenever I leave. And so I look at the places I've worked in the past, and I still connect with. Probably three quarters of the people I worked for, at some point there's a connection. How are you doing? What do you think about this? And I'll call different ones for different situations, uh, you know. And and so you kind of build this this team of mentors over time, and and you can use them for different parts of your your career or situations you're going through. And I, Chris said something about really thinking about who you work for, and and I use that a lot in the hiring processes. You know, what are you looking for? Are you, do you think you know everything and you want a leadership role or are you on a pathway to leadership and what do you want out of the job beyond the finances? The finances need to be fair and, and, and just, but what do you want out of this job? Because if you want to learn and develop and leave here better and get a better job, I will do that for you. I'm invested in you. If you just want to do it for money, then you might find there's a director that can do that for you but they don't have the time or they're not as invested in you and so you have to weigh up what's right for you so that's a question you should be asking yourself at all times is who am i going to work for until i get to a point where i can be that mentor or that leader that is passing it on so it's kind of that earning versus learning phase right and at what point are you learning before you start to to get a position that pays you really well so um the one other thing I would add is I encourage say, in our future leaders group that I have here at the campus, we talk about or i'll tell them it doesn't cost much to take a senior pro or a pro you respect or want to learn something from doesn't cost much to take them out for breakfast or for lunch and so for twenty bucks, can you go and spend an hour or two with someone and pick their brain and quite often they're right in front of you, and you just have to have the courage to go and ask them and I don't know many people who will say no, it's flattering to be asked, and I think we're a pay it forward type industry for the most part, so look for people around you in your immediate environment, and you never know where that's going to go, and for twenty dollars, if it's no good, it didn't cost you much. So I think there's opportunities there that you don't have to seek out the greatest person in the industry to be a mentor. they're right in front of you sometimes. I think that's something that that doesn't get
3: discussed enough um, is is peer inspiration as well. There's, if, if, you, if you've created, your, if you're a leader, you should also be networking with other leaders to inspire you. You know, there's, there's, there's great directors of rackets that are uh, a little bit younger than me or my age that I, I work with and bounce off ideas and discuss topics with them and vice versa. And if you can put your ego in check and say, hey, I'm, I'll listen to, to anyone. You know, you can create also a peer network that's going to drive inspiration, and and I don't think that's discussed enough. Everyone talks about mentors, and, and please, I think I've made it very clear my what I think about a mentor and and um, how important they are. But uh, my goal and, and and stamp I'd like to leave is is that hey, let's let's be a community, let's be a network, and let's let's help each other grow and develop. You know, even if we feel like we're we're at the top echelon of where we are in our career there's still this learning to be done. And that can be done through, through mentors or through peer inspiration, I think.
1: That's fabulous information, both of you, Chris and Simon. We do need to be an industry where we have mentors and mentoring happening. We need to learn from each other. And that's really what this podcast is all about. We look forward to the next episode where Chris is gonna stay with us. And I'm gonna to talk to them both about the mistakes that they've made and how they learn from them. We're looking forward to that. We'll see you next time on Racket Fuel.
0: That's all for today, but we're not out of fuel. You can find more information and resources in our show notes and by visiting racketfuelpodcast.com. If you liked what you just heard, please subscribe and also leave a review, which helps other people join the mission to become stronger Rackets leaders.
3: This podcast is a production of Athlete Plus, the people, stories, and science behind elite athletes and teams. Athlete Plus is the official podcast network of the Institute for Coaching Excellence, a research, education, and outreach center in the College of Health and Human Performance at the University of Florida. The Institute for Coaching Excellence offers various online certificate programs and degrees in partnership with the Department of Sport Management. Learn more today at coaching.hhp.ufl.edu.